Hello, welcome to another Use of Force. This week, for our walk around near Queens and visiting graveyards, we have another Use of Force that comes from around that area. Yeah, the incident that we're going to discuss today happened in Glendale. And I'm going to start by reading the NYPD use of force report. On December 22nd, 2010, at approximately 2145 hours, in the confines of the 104th precinct, a female complainant called 911 to state that her adult son, against whom she had had an order of protection, was menacing her with a knife. A uniformed sergeant and five uniformed officers responded to the scene and were joined by another sergeant and two officers. The first, larger group proceeded to the backyard of the location after being informed by the complainant that her son sometimes fled via a rear window. The second group went to the front door and used the complainant's keys to enter. Inside, they immediately encountered a male white subject armed with several knives. The subject rushed at the sergeant and two officers, who, with no room to retreat, fired three rounds, four rounds, and one round, respectively, striking and killing the subject. A knife with a five-inch blade was recovered from the subject's hand, and two additional knives were found in his immediate vicinity. The subject had an arrest history that included assault, criminal possession of a weapon, and menacing. At the time of his demise, the subject had a blood alcohol content two and a half times the legal limit for driving and had antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications in his system. So this young man was named Zachary Bingert. He was 21 years old at the time of the incident. And as it, it did say in, in the use of force report that his mother called the police and that she did have a order of protection out against him because they had had numerous previous incidents between the two of them where he had harmed her. Zachary was diagnosed bipolar and also had a problem with alcohol the based on reporting the way that this particular incident happened is that Zachary's mother Donna Bingert knew that her son was staying on the street and allowed him into her home because it was cold outside and she you know wanted still wanted to take care of him even though obviously they had this history of violence and it seems as though things were okay when he first got there but then started to not be okay and that's why she needed help from the police and ultimately expected the this to play out in ways similar to what had played out before, where he wasn't shot and killed, where he was removed and 
brought to the police station, but unfortunately it didn't. And the police did arrive and as soon as they came into proximity of him, they shot and killed him. Mm-hmm. So four years after this incident, the family won a lawsuit of $250,000. And there's, there is actually quite a lot of reporting on both the lawsuit and the incident. It's all in this particular case, it all seems to actually match pretty well what the police reported as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems that there's a there's a lot of overlaps between this case and last week's case, interestingly enough. Yeah, I guess the I mean the main difference I would say a young white man with multiple knives and intoxicated is shot down by the police. Oh, that was two weeks ago when we spoke about Dennis Vulcan. Right. Yes, that I I agree. Yeah, it's it is a very similar situation, and it makes me think that things like this probably happen fairly often, and or at least it it has happened a number of times, and not necessarily you know the that it ends with lethal use of force, but that there are incidents like this where a family member is calling the police for fear of being harmed by another family member. Yeah. So I wasn't able to find, and I that's not to say that it wasn't available, but I might not have searched quite as much on this as I, if, you know, if someone is looking to find this information, it's probably available because there was a lawsuit. Oftentimes when there's a lawsuit, it's the names of the police officers that were involved are public somewhere. I just wasn't able to find that this week. But what I did find was that the Patrick Lynch, the police, the president of the Police Benevolent Association, was not happy about the lawsuit and was defending his police officers and, quote, said, quote, the mayor is willing to give them whatever they ask for or something close to it. It's starting a bad precedent that you can sue the NYPD and no matter what, the city will settle. Oh, I'm sorry. That's actually not what Patrick Lynch said. That was what another police officer said. And then later, Patrick Lynch was quoted also being against the settlement. Mm-hmm. And so again, we're just seeing this this type of behavior from the police that's not where they're just defending themselves and defending their officers and wanting to wanting the city to back them up, I guess, and not not feeling any sort of remorse, I guess, for killing someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to envision a scenario where even in the best case where we make significant reform that is 
hand in hand with law enforcement that remorse is going to be something that they're going to feel because that is a next tier level management of emotions. Mm. I think that the compartmentalization that most officers are going to do is pretty simple where they have a job to do and for them to feel remorse is to potentially put themselves in a really disconsolate state. Right. And yeah, I I guess it is more difficult to grapple with the feelings of remorse then because that you know, this is what this particular article that I'm referencing where it's quoting a bunch of cops, they're saying they're also saying that this settlement drew outrage from cops. So they're not able to feel remorse, but they're able to feel anger at the family whose son they killed. Yeah. I mean, I obviously don't agree with that. I would agree that I would like to not see lawsuits being brought up against law enforcement so much, but the way to do that is to start really trying to get the reform done on your end. Yeah, I think when you start to see patterns within the lawsuits that signals that there's a pattern of bad behavior happening within the NYPD. And yeah, like you just said, fix that behavior and then you won't see the lawsuits. Or they'll be easier to dismiss if your officers aren't actually behaving in that way. Yeah. But it probably feels very overwhelming for them to fix as well, even on the inside. This, you know, fraternal sense of how the department is run would make it probably even for the the people that are rising to the top are probably the most faithful adherents to that system. And if it's their responsibility or they are the people that could potentially change things, it, yeah, it's if if they surfed that wave in order to get there, even if they had a change of heart, they might feel like it's impossible. And so, rather than accepting blame or or trying to find change, you decry the lawsuits and further muddy the waters. So it's not, it's just not black and white to identify what the problem is or how to change it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, I mean, maybe. And I don't know if this is the right answer, but maybe there does need to be some change in who's uh, some change in power within the police association as well. I know Patrick Lynch started as a cop, and I believe it was in the late 90s, and then worked as a police officer for only three years before he was promoted to, you know, fact check me if I'm wrong, but a manager, management sort of position within his department. And he was very quickly promoted. I think he became president of the Police Benevolent Association within 10 years of working there. And now has been, he still is the president, right? Mm -hmm. So this this is from 2010 been 10 years since then and yeah he's he's been running this 
for possibly two decades at this point. Yeah. Or probably about 15 years at this point. Yeah. So it might just be time to shift things around. Yeah, perhaps. As far as the specific instance of this case, because I don't want to short shrift it, it yes. feels, you know, after having done this for a while, I don't, you don't want to make it feel rote. But this one is, is an instance that feels like it's happened several times where domestic dispute or otherwise unstable person that should have received interventions further down the line or yeah. should have been part of a society that is more understanding and, and capable to discuss and foster these problems. Yeah. And then the police is brought in to a situation where they are tested with a, you know, violent aggression against them or the appearance of violent aggression. And at that point, it's how is the training going to respond, you know? Right. Yeah, I think in this particular case, we're looking at someone that has mental health issues, you know, being di diagnosed as bipolar and is struggling with that. And then, you know, if they found both anti-anxiety and antidepressants in his system, he's, maybe that's how he's managing his bipolar disorder. Or maybe that's in addition to, you know. And then there are multiple quotes from friends and family talking about how Zachary had said that he just couldn't stop drinking. So he's also struggling with substance abuse. And this is a young, you know, this is a young 21-year-old man who had also been arrested multiple times and, you know, in and out of the system and the system failed him. And like you said, yeah, we've we've seen this before and think that's something that needs to be addressed is how we're before it gets to the point where this is the you know this has happened several times where the mother's called the police and this particular time is the time where things don't go right and the young man dies figuring out how you can solve the problem or at least intervene in a productive way before it gets to that yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we can get that to that place as a society soon to yeah. stop, stop ostracizing people and yeah. increase the chances. There is no magic bullet that solves these problems. It's only about right. probability. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, you know, we've discussed this before, but I think that the way to get there is to stop treating mental health issues and substance abuse issues as simple crimes where someone comes in, spends a little bit of time sitting and thinking about what they've done basically in time out and then gets put back out with no, no rehab, no 
assistance in how to actually overcome whatever it is that they're struggling with, I think it's, it's definitely time for us to reassess how we actually help people when they, when they come into the system. We should have systems in place that actually help people prepare themselves to, you know, re-enter society, try again, and have a better framework for themselves for how they can interact with people and how they can interact with themselves and the world and, you know, give people support systems. Yeah. So I don't think there's really much more to say about this because, like I said, there there is quite a lot of reporting, but it all kind of says the same thing. There's not a lot of discrepancies. So I think we can end it there. Okay. If you have more information or particular interest in this case, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, as always, for listening. Until next week, take care. Bye. Bye.